You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collected work by Rudolf Steiner, number 107, entitled Disease, Karma, and Healing, Spiritual Scientific Inquiries into the Nature of the Human Being. This is Lecture 4, given in Berlin on the 26th of October, 1908. Today's lecture aims to explore the conditions that must be met if a person is to develop the powers and capacities slumbering in him, learning to observe higher worlds and acquiring his own experience of them. The articles entitled, quote, How Do We Attain Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, close quote, offer a picture of various conditions we need to achieve to pursue the path of knowledge, to penetrate higher worlds. Yet these articles can only present certain aspects, and this would be true even of a series three or even ten times longer, for there is no end to what can be said in this field. It will therefore always be helpful to expand on this theme in one direction or another. In each instance we can only illumine things from a particular perspective, and we should uphold the principle that what has been gained from one angle needs enlarging or extending through insight from another. Today, in brief outline, let us try to cast light from one perspective on some of the conditions of the path of knowledge, conditions for ascending into higher worlds. You will remember the interpretive, interpretative suggestions I gave in relation to Goethe's fairy tale. Involved here is the fact that we have various kinds of soul capacities and that our ascent depends on the one hand on development of thinking, feeling and will as distinct and separate faculties. At the same time we need to practice a method that brings these three into the right balance and interrelationship. Will, feeling and thinking must always be developed to precisely the right degree in respect of our specific spiritual goals. For a certain goal, for example, will, will must hold back, while feeling is more strongly accentuated. For another, thinking must take a back seat, and for yet another, feeling. Through esoteric exercises we must develop all these soul faculties in the right proportion and their development is connected with our ascent into higher worlds. Above all, it is necessary to cleanse and purify thinking. This is so that thinking shall no longer be dependent on external sensory observation as achieved on the physical plane. As well as thinking, however, feeling and will can also become powers of cognition. They follow individual paths in ordinary life. Sympathy and antipathy are governed by the predilections of each individual, yet they can become objective, cognitive faculties. Scientists today may regard this as inconceivable, 
It is easy to believe this about thinking, especially when its concepts are geared to sensory observation. But how shall it be acknowledged that feeling can become a source of objective insight if one person feels one way about something, the other another? How could anyone accept that something as volatile and dependent on individual personality as sympathy or antipathy could become a standard for knowledge, and that we could sufficiently discipline them to grasp the things in most nature? It is easy to see that thought does this, but difficult to believe that when we meet an object which awakens a feeling in us, such activity of feeling can exist in us in a way that makes it a vehicle of expression for what lives in the object's inmost nature rather than just the individual's own sympathy or antipathy. Likewise, to go further and say that the power of will and desire can become a means to express a thing's inner nature seems at first to be downright frivolous. But in the same way that thinking can be cleansed and thus become objective, so that it allows expression of both sensory and higher realities, feeling and will can likewise become objective. Yet we should not misunderstand this. As feeling is ordinarily in people today, in its immediate content, it cannot become the means to express a higher world. This feeling is something personal. The esoteric exercises given to pupils aim to cultivate this faculty of feeling, or in other words, to change and transform it. But this makes feeling something different from its former personal mode of expression. When we reach a certain stage on the esoteric path by developing the faculty of feeling as a form of cognition, we should not think, however, that our feeling in relation to an entity before us gives us truth or insight as such. The process is a far subtler and interior one, transforming feeling via esoteric exercises. This is expressed in the fact that someone who has transformed his feelings through such exercises arrives at imaginative perception whereby a spiritual content reveals itself to him in symbols which express realities and entities in the astral world. Feeling changes its nature, becomes imagination, so that astral images arise in us which express occurrences in astral space. A person perceiving in this way does not see in the same way as in the physical world, for instance a rose overlaid with colors, but instead in symbolic images, and in fact sees in images everything presented to us in esoteric science, the black cross, for instance, decorated with roses. All such symbols seek to express a certain reality and correspond as much to astral realities as anything we see in the external physical world corresponds to physical realities. Thus we develop our feeling faculty, but perceive in imagination. The same is true of the will. In reaching the stage that to a certain level can be attained by schooling of the will, we do not say when encountering another being that it arouses our appetites, but instead when the will has been developed, 
we begin to perceive the issuing of sound and tone in Devakan. Feeling is developed in us and the consequence is astral vision in imagination. The will is developed in us and this results in experiencing devakonic processes in the spiritual music, the harmony of the spheres, from which the inmost nature of things resounds. Just as we develop thinking and thereby attain objective thinking, the first stage, so the development of feeling, leads to the flowering of a new world at the level of imagination. And in the same way, we develop the will, whereby perception of the lower devakonic world arises in inspiration, and finally in intuition, the higher devakonic world opens up before us. As we raise ourselves, therefore, to the next level of existence, images arise which we now no longer apply in the same way as our thoughts, asking how these images relate to reality, Instead, things reveal, them to, uh, reveal themselves to us in images composed of colors and forms. And through imagination, we ourselves must unravel the nature of the entities revealed to us in this symbolic form. In inspiration, things speak to us, and we do not need to ask or decipher conceptually, which would be to apply a theory of cognition applicable to the physical plane. No. Here, the inmost nature of things themselves speaks to us. When we encounter someone who expresses his inmost being to us, this is different from our encounter with the stone. We have to inquire into the stone's nature and reflect upon it. With another human being, there is something we do not experience in this way, but instead we experience his being in what he says to us. He speaks to us. It is like this with inspiration. Conceptual, discursive thinking is not at work here, but instead we listen in to what things tell us. They themselves give utterance to their nature. It would make no sense to wonder if when someone dies and I meet him again in Devakan, I will know whom I am meeting since the devakonic beings look different and cannot be compared with what exists on the physical plane. In devakon, a being itself says what its nature is, like a person not only telling us his name, but also continually letting his essential nature stream toward us. This streams to us through the music of the spheres, and we cannot possibly fail to recognize it. Now this gives us a certain reference point for answering a question. The diverse spiritual scientific accounts easily cause misunderstandings, and we get the idea that the physical, astral, and devakonic realms are spatially distinct from each other. But we know that wherever the physical world is, the astral and devakonic worlds are also present, interwoven together. Here we might think that this being so, we might not be able to distinguish these three worlds as we do in physical space, where everything stands separately. If the realm beyond is interwoven with this realm, how do I distinguish the astral and devakonic worlds from each other? We distinguish them by virtue of the fact 
that when we rise from the astral to the devakonic plane, tones resonate through the entirety of image and color forms. What was previously spiritually luminous now begins to resound spiritually. There is also a difference in our experience of the higher worlds, so that someone who rises up into them can always tell whether he is in this or that world according to particular experiences he has there. Today I would like to characterize the differences in our experience of the astral and devakonic worlds. It is not only that we can perceive the astral world through imagination and the devakonic world through inspiration, but there are other experiences too that tell us which world we are in. One aspect of the astral world is the period we pass through immediately after death, called Kamaloka in spiritual scientific literature. What does it mean to be in Kamaloka? We have often attempted to describe the nature of this. Frequently I have cited the example of the gourmet, ravenous, for the experience that only his sense of taste can satisfy. His physical body has been cast off and left behind at death, and to a large degree the ether body likewise. But the astral body is still present. Thus the person remains in possession of the qualities and powers he had during life in the physical body, and these do not immediately alter after death, but do so only gradually. If a person had, has had a longing for tasty food, this longing remains, this appetite for enjoyment. But after death he lacks the instrument to satisfy this since the physical body and its organs are no longer there. He must therefore forego this enjoyment, lusting for something he cannot have. This applies to all Kamaloka experiences, which really consist in nothing other than living in the state that obtains in the astral body, having longings for satisfaction that can only be fulfilled by the physical body. Since we do not have this any longer after death, we are obliged to relinquish our search and lusting for such pleasures. This is the period of getting used to doing without them. We are only free of them when we have plucked this longing out of our astral body. During this whole Kamaloka period, what we can call privation lives in the astral body in the most diverse forms, shades and nuances. This is the content of Kamaloka. Just as we can differentiate light into red, yellow, green or blue tones, we can likewise differentiate between the most diverse qualities of privation. And this is the quality characteristic of a person in Kamaloka. The astral body is not only Kamaloka, however, but is far more wide-reaching. No one who had lived only in the physical world and experienced its content could ever initially experience the other regions of the astral world, whether after death or by other means, without due preparation. Initially, the only way such a person can experience the astral world is through privation. Someone who rises to higher worlds and knows that he must be deprived of one thing or another, for there is no prospect of receiving it there, experiences the astral world's content of consciousness. Even if someone could, by some esoteric means, leave his body 
and gain entrance to the astral world, he would still have to suffer privation in the astral world. So how do we develop ourselves so as to become familiar not only with the part of the astral world expressed in privations, the phase of enforced privation, but to experience it in the fullest sense, the part of it which really gives expression to this world in a good sense, in the best sense. By developing the opposite of privation, we can enter the other part of the astral world. Thus, methods that awaken powers in us that are the opposite of privation will take us into this other realm of the astral world. These powers must be given us. They are the powers of renunciation. As with privation, many different shades of renunciation are conceivable. The smallest renunciation we undertake takes us a step forward in the sense of developing ourselves upward toward the good aspect of the astral world. By renouncing even the smallest thing, we instill in ourselves something that contributes substantially to our experience of the good aspect of the astral world. This is why so much importance is placed in esoteric traditions on the pupil practicing renunciation by renouncing something or other for a while. By doing so, he finds admission to the good side of the astral world. What does such a practice achieve? Let us reflect for a moment on our experiences in Kamaloka. Imagine someone passes through death or by some other means departs from his physical body so that he lacks the physical instruments of the body and is deprived of all gratification. Privation immediately ensues and this appears as a pictorial imagination in the astral world. For instance, a red pentagon or a red circle appears. This is nothing other than an image of what enters a person's field of vision corresponding to the privation in the same way that an object on the physical plane corresponds to our mental picture of it. If a person has very low cravings, primitive desires, gruesome beasts approach him when he emerges from his body. These terrible creatures are the symbol of the lowest cravings. But if he has learned renunciation, then at the moment he leaves his body at death or through initiation, the red circle vanishes because he imbues the red with the feeling of renunciation. It is transformed and a green circle arises instead. Likewise, the animal or creature will vanish through powers of renunciation to be replaced by a noble form of the astral world. Through the powers of renunciation, we develop through abstinence. We must transform into its opposite what is first given us objectively as the red circle or the hideous animal. From unknown depths, Renunciation conjures the true forms of the astral world. No one who wishes to elevate himself to the astral world in a real sense should believe, therefore, that this can be achieved without engaging the powers of his soul. Without this he would only enter one part of the astral world. He must practice abstinence, relinquishing all imagination also. He who abstains, renounces, and this is what conjures forth the true form of the astral world. 
In Devakan, one has inspiration. Here, too, an inner distinction exists between its different parts, which we cannot experience passively after death. Less dire things obtain in Devakan due to a certain set of circumstances in the universe. The astral world contains the terrible Kamaloka, but Devakan does not yet have this. This will only come about in the Jupiter and Venus planetary stages, when use of black magic and such like will likewise have brought it into a state of decadence. Then, of course, similar things will develop in Devakan, as we find today in the astral world. In Devakan at the present cycle of evolution, conditions are somewhat different. What first confronts us when we ascend on the path of knowledge from the astral world to Devakan, or when we are led upward on the ordinary path that all of us take at death, what do we experience in Devakan? We experience bliss. What differentiates into tones from nuances of color is certainly bliss. At the current stage of evolution, everything in Devakan actively produces and spiritually hears and attunes to knowledge. And here all producing, all hearing of the harmony of the spheres is bliss. In Devakan we will feel pure bliss and nothing but bliss. When we are taken upward through spiritual knowledge by the leaders of of human evolution, the masters of wisdom and of the harmony of feelings, or as an ordinary person after death, we will always experience bliss in that realm. This is what the initiate will inevitably experience when he has reached this stage on the path of knowledge. But it lies in the nature of the world's progress that it is not sufficient to stop at mere bliss, thus only intensifying the most refined kind of spiritual egotism. The human individuality would then merely continue to absorb the warmth of bliss, but the world itself would not progress. If this happened, beings would develop who grew hard within their souls. The salvation and progress of the world, therefore, requires someone who enters Devakan not only to acquire the potential to experience all shades of bliss in the music of the spheres, but also to develop feelings in himself of the opposite of bliss. Just as privation contrasts with renunciation, so the feeling of sacrifice balances bliss. A sacrifice where one is prepared to pour out what one receives as bliss and let it flow forth into the world. The sense of self-sacrifice was what those divine spirits we call thrones possessed when they began to play their part in creation. In pouring out their own substance on Saturn, they sacrificed themselves for developing humanity. The matter that exists today is the same that they let stream out on Saturn. And the spirits of wisdom likewise sacrificed themselves on ancient sun. These divine spirits ascended into higher worlds, not only passively receiving the experience of bliss, but in their passage through Devakan, learning to sacrifice themselves. They did not grow poorer through this sacrifice, but richer. 
Only a being living entirely in matter believes that he will fade away by sacrificing himself. No, ever higher, richer development is connected with self-sacrifice in the service of universal evolution. We see, therefore, that a person ascends to imagination and inspiration and enters the sphere where his whole being is permeated with ever new subtleties of bliss, where, you can say, he experiences everything that surrounds him, not only as speaking to him, but as an imbibing of the spiritual tones of bliss. Ascent to higher faculties of cognition involves transformation of all the feelings we have, Esoteric schooling consists in nothing other than the transformation of our feeling and will by practicing the rules and methods, tried and tested through millennia, which the masters of wisdom and of the harmony of feelings have given us. This leads us upward to higher insights and experiences. The pupil will attain these higher faculties by gradual esoteric cultivation and transformation of the content of his feeling and will. Those who stand within the spiritual, scientific movement should not think it a matter of indifference whether they have belonged to it for three, six or seven years. This means something. The pupil should develop a clear sense of accompanying the inner lawfulness of this inner growth. We must attend to this, otherwise its effects will pass us by. The end of Lecture 4